welcome back to another episode of Confessions of a Krabby Christian, a Misfit Media Network production. I am your host and resident Krabby Christian, Blake, and every week I get to have the coolest conversations with incredible people about all the things most Christians are still not sure we're allowed to talk about. So if you've been looking for a place to land with all your crap and for someone to just be honest about what it looks like to walk through this Christian life, well, you've come to the right place. Pull up a seat, pop in your headphones and tune out your kids and come hang out with me and a guest for the authentic conversations that you have been looking for. Miss Rebecca Lyons, welcome to Confessions of a Crappy Christian. Thank you for having me. It is always such a delight to get to interview people that I have been reading their books for forever. So it's an honor. I love you. I love your work. Well, thank you. I'm I'm so grateful to be here and I'm grateful for your podcast title. <laughs> <laughs> it's honest and that's what we need. So thank yeah, you. Exactly. Personally, Rhythms of Life was huge for me. That book, I listened to your podcast. And you have another book coming out. And I'm so excited because just everything that you write, it just resonates. Like your mm-hmm. writing resonates because it comes from a place of like grit and grace and struggle. And it's kind of the heart behind your new book, Building a Resilient Life, How Adversity Awakens Strength, Hope, and Meaning. And it comes out in just a couple of weeks from when we're recording. I would love for you to tell us a little bit about it. Oh, absolutely. This followed Rhythms of Renewal because Rhythms was really all about how to have sustained emotional, spiritual, and relational health, physical as well. And those four rhythms, rest, restore, connect, create. But then I realized the difference between a rhythmic life and a resilient life is continuing those rhythms, even in the face of adversity. Mm. And I find that rhythms invites us to come like when we abide with God, but then resilience requires that we remain. And rhythm is so much about this intention and resilience is so much about perseverance. And so it would make sense that I would go from writing around rhythms to writing around resilience because all of a sudden COVID happened, you know, six months after rhythms book came out, which gave everyone, you know, an opportunity to practice those rhythms, but also to really be reminded of the areas that we're not as resilient as we'd like to be, or like to think we would be. And even this global pandemic became so much more than a pandemic. It became a mental health pandemic. And it was partly because we just had not had the tools in our tool belt to know how to respond to adversity when it comes. Like we've had lower T traumas, I would say as a society, but this became an acute in your face, capital T trauma. And we were left languishing. And, and I wrote this book initially for my kids. I was on a mental health summit about via zoom about four weeks into lockdown. And I remember saying something like our, our kids haven't really known trauma in their lifetime. Yes, they were, some of them were privy to nine 11, but it was far removed. And really the imp- direct impact of trauma is correlated to how young we are when it happens and how proximate we are when it happens. Mm. And so this all of a sudden became very proximate because it was in our homes and not only in past wars, like world wars, mental health has always risen. Like people have gotten stronger in their mental health, but COVID was the very first pandemic globally where everything declined, mental health declined. Everyone struggled. Suicidal ideation in tweens tripled in 12 weeks. And so I had to get, I had to dig in and realize, oh, 
this is far bigger than this aspirational idea of resilience. It's very much connected to the fact that we, <laughs> we don't actually understand how to take agency in this season. And that's because in the past wars, everyone would be tethered with a shared goal, a shared enemy, a shared action plan. People, they worked as tribes and clans. They worked in community. And so historically, healing for centuries, long before the 20th century and the 21st century, is that healing historically from trauma would always begin with community. Mm. The second approach would be through regulatory rhythms where you get up and move your body. And then the third one would be ascribing to a faith or a higher power or cognitive behavioral therapy with a therapist. And the fourth, the final approach would be medicine. But we turned it upside down. And all of a sudden we begin with medicine. We want to kind of buffer the symptoms. But meanwhile, our symptoms are just revealing all is not well, right? So we want to buffer the symptoms. And then we want, then we want to go to therapy with someone that we may or may not know personally. And then the third thing is movement and then community. So we're, we're almost upside down. And that's why we had no agency with COVID. The terms kept changing. They kept going longer and longer. And we were told as a society, go home in isolation, sit on your hands and wait to be told what to do. Right. A humanity is not made to sit idle while the world is falling apart. Like that's just not how God wired us. That's not what he put in us. And so that is why we struggled with so much despair because we lost a sense of purpose in it. We lost a sense of agency. And quite frankly, all the things that we had been avoiding through busyness and distraction just came to a head. And yet we had no community to help us walk through marital crisis, walk through teenage crisis, walk through suicidal crisis, Everyone had to stay alone in their own homes while these things became bigger and louder. And so unfortunately, resilience was almost like this abstract thing. We went the opposite direction. And I, now I'm finding that three years later in 23, it's like when you brace yourself for a car crash, right? You've got the adrenaline, you know what to do in the moment, your body fight, flight, or freeze, just react. But when the moment passes, finally, your body lets down. And I know for me, after an acute panic attack, my I, I can brace it when it's happening. But when the moment passes, I simply just begin to cry. My body lets down and everything I've stored is released. And that's what we're facing right now in 2023. I literally talked on my Instagram and on my personal segments of my podcast like three or four weeks ago and admittedly didn't know about this book yet way less scientific, way less clear than you, but was just like, did we just go through collective trauma and now we're just exhausted? Yeah. Now yeah. we're coming out of the COVID fog and my DMs lit up where it was, everybody was just, I'm so tired. And that's a really, mm -hmm. like you were saying, that's mm -hmm. common after in healing, when you find peace, you're just want to sleep all the time. Yeah. We were like, I'm exhausted. And I'm looking back at the last three years going, what just happened? And to your point, the government told us to go in our homes and just like, wait, wait, <laughs> indefinitely. <laughs> like a indefinitely. lot of us did it, you know, because. Well, and we were doing the right thing. We were, right. we were trying to honor and care for those who were more vulnerable. I lost my mother-in-law to COVID. It's very personal and deep for all of us. We all lost so much. So I'm not minimizing that. No, absolutely. We also weren't, we were unable because of kind of like the way lockdown went down. We weren't able to see her for about a year and a half because mm. 
she was so vulnerable with chemo. But then the worst part is we were prohibited to seeing her the last eight days of her life because of a surge in COVID. So she basically declined rapidly for the first time in 52 years, not able to see her husband. Ah. And so there are things that we look back on and go, you know, if we knew now what we knew then, maybe we would have handled things differently. But in the end, trauma happened all around. Exactly, It happened all around, whether or not we liked it, asked for it, or would have done it the same way now. And now we're still left with some PTSD and we have to decide what we're going to do. And so the resilience method is so much about going, we've all experienced ambiguous loss, much without an end date. Mm -hmm. And what are we going to do about it? Are we going to just continue to talk about how tired and exhausted we are and continue to state the obvious, which is true. You have to begin by naming the pain, Mm -hmm. but we have to move forward. And it's not because it's aspirational and it's just going to make you look attractive online or whatever. It's no, it's actually for your future and for your kid's future. Yeah. Society historically has always endured trauma much bigger than being sent home. Mm -hmm. And the reality is civilization has continued to move forward. Why? Because people had to decide I'm going to be tethered to community. I'm going to have regulatory rhythms in my life. I'm going to make sure that I have a faith value, a belief in something beyond myself. And then I will get the medicine when necessary, natural, herbal, you name it, and take care of your brains. And so I really unpack that a lot in this book. That's I want it to be approachable and a playbook and going like, this isn't so that you can bounce back. I mean, that's, that's a minimization of what resilience really is. Resilience essentially is resuming the original shape after a season of being compressed and crushed and bent and low and humbled and going like, you're not going to return exactly the same, but you will find your legs to stand up again. And that is what is a holy resilience. And bouncing back isn't like, that's not really biblical. That's not, you don't see that laid out in scripture. You see people who weather the storm and usually do come out the other side changed because we serve a God that's capable of using the storm to build the resilience, to change us. Like, I don't want to go through something terrible and come out the other side and be like, I'm exactly the same. I learned nothing, right? Right. Like that's, that doesn't feel like growth or forward motion either. Yeah. Sure. I went back to the roots of resilience. I study, I love, I kind of nerd out on neuroscience and the scriptures. My, my life, you know, mission is to always pair science and faith because I believe that God is the master scientist and he made our brains and he uses all means necessary for our healing. So that said, I still go under this covering of Jesus as my peace, my prince of peace that I submit to so that I can know how to react to panic attacks in the moment. Or, you know, we'll talk about this in a minute about anxiety being our friend, right? So we don't have to turn away from the pain. We can turn toward it, but we understand the whole point of this book is really based on 2 Corinthians 4. And the scriptures really in that text talk about how we're pressed and we're crushed, but we're not destroyed. We're perplexed. We're all still perplexed a little bit about COVID, but we're not driven to despair. Why? Because we carry light shining in our hearts. And that is why we never give up. And there's a lot of language about community, Acts to church, like a biblical household of faith. And this all just informed after tons of research from psychiatry and psychology and the scriptures, I thought, okay, here are five rules of resilience that I believe tether us the Lord, but also tether us to science Mm -hmm. so that we can make sense of how to retrain our brains, how to name the pain, how to welcome people in, 
how to confront anxiety, you know, punch fear in the face and feel stronger on the other side, more hopeful and more purposeful. One of the concepts that you cover is this idea of making adversity and anxiety our friend instead of our enemy. And when I was researching for our interview, I was like, "Mm, what? (laughs) But then I realized, and I told you this before we started recording, I do EMDR therapy and just started kind of venturing into that part of the conversation, something that you've always viewed as being against you and being an enemy that it's actually usually trying to protect you and that it's something that you can learn from. It's very counterintuitive, but tell us about that. Yeah, honestly, it changed everything for me because anxiety became my fancy word for fear. And I had had panic disorder. Now it's 13 years ago, it began in 2010. So this is not new for me. I've gone through all the cycles of how I feel about anxiety, but having done this for a long time now and counseled a lot of people through it, I've learned that anxiety is a backyard bully. It's fear. And if you avoid it, it grows. It just does. And so then you begin to avoid all the circumstances where you feel that anxiety. For me, it would be like opening my laptop and looking at my my iCal. And I'm like, well, I can't really avoid my work altogether or avoiding planes. And then God puts me on a plane every week to talk about the rescue of God. Right. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, great. God has a sense of humor. All my panic attacks began in planes, trains, elevators, stuff and crowds and that yet I live in New York City. Right. And it's impossible to avoid these things. So even in neuroscience, we would approach this as cognitive behavioral therapy, that you have to go back to the places that were fearful and threatening. And then you have to retrain your brain in small measured steps, small measured predictable ways. That's the only way, honestly, to recover what's been stolen from you in your brain. So that you can build, you can repair those injured neurons and you can rebuild those neural pathways that have been blocked. And so it does take discipline. It does take support. But honestly, that's how you build resilience. Resilience is always when you approach something that's novel, new, a little fearful, it activates your stress response. But then you got people around you cheering you on and going, you're doing a great thing. And then you, you do just enough to kind of push the boundaries. Then you retreat. And then you do it again, a little further, and then retreat. And honestly, this is how we raise resilient kids. This is how they thrive in athletics or music. Like you always have to push yourself just enough to grow just enough so that you then feel more confident when you pursue it again the next day. And that's how I treat anxiety. I had to keep getting on planes. I had to, at some point, just really confront letting the acute terror of a panic attack roll through my body without Xanax without some form of escape and waited out. And honestly, it was a real gift that this happened later in my journey. I didn't have a panic attack for about seven years through, I believe, the rescue of God, being flooded with peace, having a lot of regulatory rhythms in my wheelhouse that kept my brain kind of regulated. But when exhausted, fatigued, over, overstretched, I would always be vulnerable. And this happened when I was in the beginning of writing this book, I had a crazy panic attack that triggered out of being same exact setting that my very first one began. It was like back of the plane, stuck on the tarmac, didn't realize it was coming because I was totally consumed with the book I was reading. I look up and just everything rolls through. And I thought, oh my goodness, I would have felt shame. I did feel shame when I experienced this a few years prior at the beginning of the Rhythms book. I write that story. This time I didn't feel shame. I almost felt like, okay, this is hilarious, right? Like when you least expected your body, the lower part of your brain cannot tell time. It's just, it's literally just the survival part of your brain 
And so when you experience something that is so similar to something that was very traumatizing, it immediately takes you right back there as if it's happening now. Yeah. That's why PTSD is real for war veterans, for kids that were abused. Like that's a real thing. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to let my body do what my brain is telling me is happening. When I logically know in the top part of my brain that this is not going to kill me. <laughs> right. Even though I'm acting physically as if I'm being held at gunpoint and my heart rate is up in the 160s to 80s, I can't speak, like all my extremities, like the blood rushes there, I'm going to let it roll through. And so the whole time I'm just saying peace. Jesus, you're my peace. I just like a cadence, a rhythmic cadence of just saying his name and I let it roll and it kind of just does, it ravages my body. And then about eight minutes later, it's done. It's literally done. And I had to sit in that same spot on that tarmac for 40 more minutes and I was perfectly fine. And so I learned something that day. I thought, oh my goodness. I started to study like what's the average length or duration of an acute panic attack. And usually it's under 10 minutes, like five to eight minutes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can go a little more prolonged, but I'm talking acute. And then also what's the difference between an anxiety attack and a panic attack? It's the intensity, the consistency, and how much it like takes over your body, how quickly. Yeah. So the more I understood that, I was like, okay, now I know what we're dealing with here. I actually... <laughs> don't want to go put myself in a tiny little cabinet. You know, I'm not like looking to test this out in like home elevators. I just avoid those. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how often those are checked. I can take the stairs. <laughs> but in general, I have to go like worst case scenario. This will ravage my body for up to 10 minutes on average. And then my body will let down and I'll do just what I was describing in, in the year of 2023. I will start crying when it's over. Mm -hmm. And then I'll be so grateful that we've survived and that everyone's alive. And then I'll go, okay, God, thank you for helping me grow through this. Anxiety has less of a hold on me today than it did yesterday. I'm no longer avoiding life. I'm no longer afraid of the fear because I really had more fear of my shame and how I felt in the panic attack than obviously the plane itself. Right. So it's really good to just go, who is the enemy and what is the enemy? And can you turn toward the pain instead of run from it so that you'll be able to go through it? And what I learned, I've had some, I mean, I've had a panic disorder since I was a kid. Fighting them off always makes them worse. Yeah. Like bracing against it and, and trying to make it stop and trying to keep it at bay. It just elongates it. It allows it to gain power. I was probably in my thirties before I learned, and there's science behind it of, Letting yourself have the panic attack. Yeah. To your point, eight, 10 minutes and you're done versus I've fought them off for an entire day before. Yeah. And then still ended up having a massive panic attack. Yeah. And that's, again, very counterintuitive. I was wondering if you've ever experienced this where after you have a panic attack, you almost have more clarity. Yeah, I felt, well, for this one in particular, I felt grateful. I felt like confident. Yeah. Now there is one caveat to this that I want to make sure we don't leave out. I found that the support of a loving friend in that moment 
was actually part of the catalytic piece. So on that particular flight, I had my friend Angela with me. She travels often with me. She's a rock star. I did grab her leg. I'm like, I'm sorry, it's weird, but I am I am literally, if you were my husband, yeah. I would be, you know, I just need to know someone's with me in it. We don't need to talk. I'm going to go into my breathing, my slow breathing. I'm going to like, just go into like meditation mode with Jesus. And I, I write in the book, like meditate through it, not medicate through it. Like I'm going to set my intention for how I'm going to think right now with my mouth. Even I'm going to use words to overpower whatever my brain wants to think. And so having her there was really crucial for me to go on. Someone's with me in it. And I think that's a bigger theme of resilience. We tend to overlook if the first dominant way historically over centuries of healing from trauma is community or people being with us in it. We can't even begin like while we'll have a clinical therapist, perhaps we'll pay. They're still not living life with us. And it's very, very crucial to have someone who gets you in that moment. And they like, they're just like, I'm in, I'm in, let's do this. Like, we're good. Yeah. And so that might not be a spouse. That might be a friend. That might be a kid. That might be whoever, but just somebody who's like not threatened by it, intimidated by it, trying to solve you or fix you, but just going, I'm just with you. Yeah. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here and you've got this. And honestly, that's the greatest gift. That's why the fifth rule is endure together because you just cannot build resilient lives alone. It's impossible. No, I completely. What is the timeline for you look like where you started your journey of changing the way you view anxiety? Because I'm sure there are people listening going, yeah, it probably took her 20 years to yeah. be able to have that experience. No, you know, what's interesting when I first developed panic disorder, it really was just honestly stored trauma in my body from the day Kate was born nine months prior, nine years prior, because for me, it was very much a smothering. It began with just like shutting down, being so afraid of death, because when he was born, I was 26. And I had two epidurals in 20 minutes for an emergency C-section failure to thrive. And my body actually was smothering on the table. And I thought I was dying. I started slurring my words and I said, I'm dying. And this is like the onset of motherhood. Yeah. I had no idea until the next day that my son had signs of Down syndrome. Like there was enough trauma just getting him out of my body. Yeah. And so I didn't really have, I had no skills to go, uh, we're not going to revisit that, whatever that was. And then I go to New York City that just, quite frankly, became a pressure cooker that just pushed what I had buried out. Mm -hmm. And so I blamed the city and how crowded it was. But honestly, it was a ticking time bomb. And But what was interesting, like the first panic attack was in October after we'd been in the city about four months. And that following December, it only been a couple months, And I had to get back on a plane because my aunt died. And it was this quick, like stage four pancreatic cancer. She only left, I mean, she diagnosed and then passed away within a couple months. And so I thought there is no possible way I'm getting back on a plane. But I thought about her and I was like, I've got, she was just like my favorite aunt and I wanted to be there and I couldn't imagine not being there. And so I was able to harness a sense of meaning and purpose beyond the trauma so that I could kind of focus on something. And there's a lot of neuroscience about how like this meaning is very much attached to mental health. And that's why the fourth rule of resilience is make meaning, right? Like meaning has to, 
it just, we're made for meaning. Like we can't run from it. And it definitely flies in the face of fear, right? Because meaning is the opposite. And so I get on the plane and like breathe through it, like manage crisis just, but on the return, I start to experience the same exact thing. It ravages my body, like the whole time adrenaline just shooting. And I, that was the very first time that I was in the air. Like I had no choice. Like you just got to let this go. And I didn't have anyone with me. I'm crying. And but what I did, and this is so interesting, and this was early on, is I just pictured her and Jesus locking eyes for the first time because oh. I had just left her funeral. And I just was like, I'm going to, I'm just going to close my eyes. I'm going to mentally see her and him encountering each other for the very first time. And while I did that, the trauma just ravaged again and I got through it. And, and for that reason, I was able to, you know, get off the plane and move forward. And I still had smothering. I still had like a couple of cute panic attacks that came like out of dreams and like weird circumstances. But in general, early on, I was able to go like, there are just going to be moments where you're going to be confronted with it. And the only way, really what I was doing was as a child would do in trauma, you disassociate. Yeah. You separate your brain from what you're feeling and you, you think about something that's outside of what you're experiencing. Yeah. And honestly, disassociation for kids is actually really healthy for survival. The problem is, is if you put it in a bucket and you never revisit it, that container later in life. So what helped you when you were young does not help you as an adult. You still need to go back to going okay, I created this imaginary thing, but quite frankly, it did help me then, which is why I still had to navigate that years later on a flight as well, because I still needed to revisit going, I'm still really afraid of this. Yeah. And that's what shifted over time, regulatory rhythms, a lot of exposure therapy, because I just had to get on planes, but ultimately going, God, if you are my peace and you promise me that the peace you give, the world cannot give, then I've just got to decide, like, do I really trust you? Yeah. And do I, do I want to get honest about that? And it's a work in progress. I, I don't, I don't love it now, but the more I talk about it, the more meaning I have attached to it, the more people are able to come out of this through just sharing stories of testimony. It's available to everyone. Yeah. The difference I think for me than some, and this is no judgment. I never medicated once at all in the last 13 years. This is not because I felt really strong or that I had some personal conviction about it. It was more because I watched my dad really struggle with medication for about 30 years of chronic depression and he became a shell of who he was. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, worst comes to worst. That's always an option, but I'd like to begin with just what I can learn about my brain and the circumstances environment I can create. And then we'll go from there. And so it was always like a touch and go daily thing. Let's test it. Let's try it. And so this is in no way. And I answer that question in the book because I get it forever. And it's just because For me, that was just something I decided to try. And so far, that's where we are. Well, and I think those conversations are so necessary because sometimes it feels like there's two almost sides against each other, where in reality, it's just different things are working for different people. And it's not right or wrong. It's different. Right. You would have been doing yourself a disservice putting aside your life experience and getting on a medication you didn't want to get on. Whereas there are people that I know who have the opposite life where they have a parent that probably should have been medicated and never was and wrecked their lives. And so they were more open and prone to like hereditary, just getting on the medication. It's right. That whole conversation can get so muddy because people, it it is sensitive. I think people feel 
like sensitive. They can feel shame. They can feel like I couldn't do this on my own. I had to get on medicine. Right. right. And nobody's right. saying I'm on medicine. Nobody's saying any of that. You know, it's just different things and different experiences. That gives hope, I think, to people. I love hearing from people who have navigated panic and despair and anxiety without medical intervention, because that means it's possible. Yeah. And honestly, I think that's kind of where I was with it. I, for so long, would never share this because I felt like people would think exactly that. Like I was judging that, or I had a real strong opinion why that's a bad thing. I think everyone needs to have trusted guided counsel in every season. And here's what the real plain, honest truth is, is I have a fear of medication that makes me feel out of control any more than I do of feeling out of control off right. medication. So I remember having babies and they gave me something for like the pain and it made me feel out of control. Like the actual medication made me, and I was like, I got to get out of here. And I'm like, pulling wires and cords out of, you know, don't do that when you've had no, a C-section. Yeah. <laughs> I don't recommend it. So then all of a sudden I'm like, well, I might have acute reactions for or off. Like, so honestly, part of it might've been my fear of going, will this make me feel as out of control? And honestly, I have also talked to people who have gone like, it's been really helpful for me for a season, but I also want to find the resiliency techniques to wean. Right. And I think my son's on medication and we're weaning him right now. So everybody's different. I think it's what's good about medication or not is that we don't just blanket it. Like right. I'll just be on this forever because I've gotten used to it. I think it's still really good for us to push ourselves in healthy ways under care to go like, I wonder if I could retrain my brain through practice, through regulatory rhythms, through community. And be less dependent on it or fearful if I run out or something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Rebecca, thank you so much for all of your stories and your wisdom. People know where to find and follow you. I'm not like, I'm, you're not one of those. I'd be like, where can people find you on Instagram? We'll link all of your stuff. And I'm so thankful for this conversation. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for how honest you are. Thank you for how you lead. I think it's really important for resilience that we tell the truth and that we engage in a rhythm of confession and that we invite people in. And when you lead with vulnerability, your audience will do the same. And so I'm really proud of you. Thank you for having me. And I hope to do this again. Yes. All right. Take care. All right. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Crappy Christian Podcast. And hey, by the way, if you super loved it, can you go leave a five-star review wherever you're listening? That'd be awesome. All right. See you next week.